Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, we've been watching President Biden at the White House signing what uh, Democrats are calling the Inflation Reduction Act into law. It is a sweeping investment in green energies, uh, tax reform, and other measures related to health care. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. The $750 billion health care tax and climate bill is without question a major win for Democrats ahead of the midterm elections. Let's bring in CNN's MJ Lee at the White House. And MJ, MJ this was as much of a, a bill signing as it was really a, a victory lap for, for President Biden and top Democrats today. Yeah, Jake, that is exactly what I was going to say. This was a major victory lap for President Biden. Uh, He said that the signing of this bill shows that democracy still works in America. And he said that the country is now in a season of substance. Now, he said that the law uh, accomplishes what lawmakers had been trying to get done for so many years. But these things that remain so elusive in Washington, he, of course, pointed to this major investment in fighting climate change, uh, letting Medicare finally negotiate directly with drug companies and the taxing of major corporations to reduce the deficit. And this entire event really just did have the vibe of a political event. Uh, Congressman Jim Clyburn, Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, thanking President Biden for knowing when to step in and knowing when to let legislators legislate. I will just note this was very notable. Uh, After the president signed this bill into law, he took the pen, uh, turned around and gave that pen to Senator Joe Manchin. Uh, Obviously, the White House has Joe Manchin and Senator Schumer to thank for getting this bill uh, into a bill form in the Senate at a moment when a lot of people in Washington thought that the bill was dead altogether. Uh, Jake. Many times, many times they thought it was dead. MJ Lee, thank you so much. We're going to have much more on this historic legislation coming up on the lead, but let's turn now to our other major story. New developments in the multiple investigations into former President Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. Today we learned that the federal judge who approved the Mar-a-Lago search warrant, U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart, We'll hold a hearing on Thursday about whether to unseal the affidavit, the document laying out why prosecutors felt the necessity to take the unprecedented step of searching the home of a former U.S. president. The Justice Department is against revealing that information. They claim it would provide a roadmap for their criminal investigation that they do not want potential defendants or witnesses to learn as of now. Moments ago, CNN confirmed the New York Times report that this, the FBI has interviewed both former White House counsel Pat Cipollone and his deputy Patrick Philbin about those documents taken to Mar-a-Lago when Trump left office. We're also learning today that former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani is hinting that he will not have much to say when he testifies in front of an Atlanta grand jury tomorrow. Giuliani claims the statements he made about throwing out Georgia's election results to corruptly deliver that state to Donald Trump Those statements, he claims, are covered by attorney-client privilege. Plus, two top House Democrats are now accusing the Department of Homeland Security Inspector General of obstructing their investigation into those missing Secret Service text messages surrounding the Capitol attack. Let's bring in CNN Justice Correspondent Jessica Schneider. Jessica, let's start with this 
news that both Cipollone and, and Philbin have spoken to the FBI about those documents taken to Mar-a-Lago. How big a deal is that? Tell us more. Yeah, they could have had a lot of details to divulge, Jake. So Cipollone and Philbin, they were Trump's designated representatives to deal with the National Archives. And of course, it was the archives that first raised this issue of missing documents and then referred it to the DOJ for criminal investigation. So Cipollone and Philbin were likely of interest to the FBI talking to agents because of their interaction with the archives. And they might have had some insight on what was taken to Mar-a-Lago. This latest revelation, it comes as the court fight for even more information about the search is looming. The legal fight to release more information on last week's Mar-a-Lago search is coming to a crossroads. The Justice Department is seeking to keep secret certain details prosecutors say would otherwise reveal highly sensitive information about witnesses, specific investigative techniques, and it would serve as a roadmap to the government's ongoing investigation. The judge announcing today he will hear arguments Thursday and decide whether to release those details, all part of an affidavit that lays out why investigators believe they had probable cause to obtain this search warrant to search Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate and take away classified documents. CNN and other media outlets have asked the judge to unseal the affidavit, and Trump himself must weigh in on whether he wants it released by tomorrow. I think it says there are very significant problems here for President Trump and many of his uh, advisors post-presidency. Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton, also weighing in on Trump's former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, becoming a target in another criminal investigation. This one being led by an Atlanta area prosecutor into efforts by Trump and his allies to flip election results in Georgia, claiming it was rigged. The recount being done in Georgia will tell us nothing because these fraudulent ballots will just be counted again. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, this is not a machine you want counting your votes. They look like they're passing out dope, not just ballots. Uh, it is quite clear they're stealing votes. Giuliani is scheduled to appear before the grand jury in Georgia tomorrow. It's still unclear if he will answer questions or plead the fifth. The statements that I made uh, uh, are either attorney-client privileged because they were between me and him, or they were being made on his behalf in order to defend him. President Trump may be right behind him in terms of liability. Uh, if, if Rudy's in trouble as the target of an investigation, then I think Trump almost certainly is as well. And the Justice Department making clear in that court filing from yesterday that this classified information investigation is still ongoing. In the meantime, the battle is escalating between two top House Democrats and the DHS inspector general. Members of Congress Benny Thompson and Carolyn Maloney are accusing IG Joseph Kufari of obstructing their investigation into those missing Secret Service text messages. That's in a letter they released this afternoon. Jake, no response just yet from the inspector general's office. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss former Trump White House lawyer Jim Schultz and former assistant U.S. attorney Kim Whaley. Uh, Kim, let me start with you. What kind of questions could Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin, former uh, White House uh, chief, White House counsel and White House deputy counsel for Donald Trump, uh, what could, questions could they help the FBI answer about the documents taken to, to Mar-a-Lago, these classified secrets, uh, allegedly? Well, two big things. One is the chain of custody. Who, what happened? What was the procedure in place? How did they get out of the White House? Who else might have been involved in that transition? And then secondly, what, if anything, did Donald Trump know and say about keeping or releasing to those classified documents. And Jim, according to Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, who broke this story, Trump told 
advisors about the documents, quote, it's not theirs, it's mine, unquote. Surely someone around him, uh, whether Cipollone or Philbin, would know that that's not how classified material works at all, I would think. Or Presidential Records Act subject material, generally speaking. So, no, they're the government's records. And, you know, I would, I would assume that if asked or were given the opportunity to weigh in, that Cipollone and Philbin would have done so and done so appropriately. And they know the law on this. And you, you worked with them. You, you have high regard for them? I do. I do. I never worked with Cipollone. I was, I was worked under McGahn. But I do have high regard for him. I know him. And I know he's a, he's a solid lawyer and a... And, and, and a very good advisor. And Kim, we also uh, learned today um, that a federal judge will hold a hearing on Thursday about unsealing the affidavit that allowed uh, this unprecedented uh, measure at Mar-a-Lago, the, the search of the, of the former president's home. How much does the Justice Department's opposition to releasing this affidavit matter? Uh, they say it would provide a roadmap for the defendants, uh, potential defendants and any witnesses they don't want to reveal. Um, how much does that matter when the judge makes his decision? Substantially, because there's really so. a weighing going on here. On the one hand, sort of a First Amendment right to know to the public. On the other hand, are the interests of the investigation, and not just the investigation, but individuals, both Donald Trump, people that could be ensnared in it, as well as potential witnesses, evidence, all of that. I think it's very unlikely this early stage in, the, in this investigation that the judge would allow this kind of information to become public. And, and Jim, the FBI says that it has returned... Uh, three passports, I think one of them was still operable, the other two were, were expired. Three passports to Donald Trump's lawyers after they claimed that those passports were inadvertently seized in last week's search. For those of us who don't understand how these searches work, how could passports get included in the boxes of material that the FBI takes? It, it would seem pretty clear that passports are not classified documents. Yeah, I mean, look, everybody makes errors throughout this process, but the, the problem is there's no real room for error in this case. And, and look, procedure for the FBI is that they return the documents or they make them available to be picked up if they're not so, if they're not something that is part of the investigation. And that's what they did. Nonetheless, this is a very uh, tense situation, high profile situation. The general public is and there's a lot of people from the general public that are scratching their heads and, you know, questioning the DOJ and the FBI and Congress and members of Congress are doing the same. There's not a whole lot of room for error here. And it just gives, you know, the detractors on this an opportunity to use their bully pulpit to uh, continue to thump on the DOJ. Uh, that being said, on the on the issue of the subpoena, I really believe that um, that the material piece there is is the witness piece of it. And the fact that they're trying to protect witnesses because these witnesses are still useful in ongoing investigations and maybe not the particular investigation that was the subject of the subpoena, that's something to watch. And Kim, the FBI said in a statement, quote, in executing search warrants, the FBI follows search and seizure procedures ordered by courts, then returns items that do not need to be retained for law enforcement purposes. I mean, this has been used by Trump supporters, as Jim was just alluding to, and people who are skeptical of this raid is evidence that uh, of overreach, that they were trying to make sure Donald Trump, you know, does, isn't a flight risk, et cetera. Uh, the FBI is claiming that's not, that's not true. This was just a standard procedure and uh, things got swept up that shouldn't have. Listen, I understand that people are, want to make sure the FBI and DOJ are doing their jobs, but really the, the question, the story here is, what happened to the material that was in Mar-a-Lago that really should have been in secure facilities in Washington, top secret in information that could compromise not just national security, but individuals who could be, you know, sort of secretly working for the government, et cetera. So, you know, I think it's important to have some light on what's happening at DOJ and the FBI. But remember, uh, a federal judge signed off.
off on this. And also, as was indicated, there's a procedure in place if these kinds of things get uh, inadvertently gathered. So we ha we really should keep our eye on what what are the state what interests are at stake for the United States moving forward. All right, Kim Whaley and Jim Schultz, thanks to both. You really appreciate it. A major turn since the days of record gas prices. How quickly experts say you could be paying less than three dollars a gallon. Plus. A couple caught in an espionage plot in court. How prosecutors say they used to had they tried to share U.S. secrets in a peanut butter sandwich. And explosions rocking an ammunition depot in the Russian-controlled Crimea region. Ukraine's guarded response, as the Kremlin calls the blasts, sabotage. Stay with us. In our money lead, there is some hope at the pump. Gas prices dropping for the 63rd day in a row today. The average price for a gallon of gas is now $3.95. That's eight cents cheaper than a week ago. But are these prices on track to continue to plunge lower? CNN's Matt Egan joins us now. Matt, we're now at $3.95 a gallon. How low could we see prices fall? Could they fall as low as it was a year ago, $3.18 a gallon? Well, Jake, the message from the market is that this plunge in gas prices is not nearly done. Just this afternoon, U.S. oil prices fell another 3%, closing at around $86.50 a barrel. That is the lowest level in nearly seven months. And for some context, during the scary days of early March, when Russia's invasion of Ukraine was setting off all this chaos in energy markets, we saw oil prices go above $130 a barrel. So this signals more relief for consumers at the pump. 63 days in a row of falling gas prices. You actually have 12 states, including um, Iowa, and Texas that are dealing with 360 or lower average gas prices. And if you look at what some of the analysts are saying, they're saying that it's very possible that by September or October, the national average could go below the pre-war level of $3.53 a gallon. Gasoline futures are signaling that some states could actually see sub $3 gas by the end of the year. Jake, I would caution though that this all hinges on nothing going wrong. If Russia's oil exports get knocked offline, if there's a hurricane in the Gulf that shuts down refineries or production, all bets are off. But for now, Jake, we will take the good news where we can get it. Uh, let's turn to another uh, economic story. Walmart released its quarterly results today. What did those results have to say about the overall shopping habits of Americans right now? Well, it shows that Americans are clearly cost sensitive, price sensitive right now. Walmart has been forced to cut prices on apparel and other items because their consumers are dealing with high food and fuel prices. That strategy seems to be working. They've been able to lure people back to the stores. They reported steady sales growth. But what's telling is that Walmart says that middle and higher income Americans, more of them are shopping at their stores as they look for discounts. And taking that a step further, people are shifting what they're buying. They're not buying as much high-priced deli meat, but they are spending on canned tuna, hot dogs, chicken, and other more affordable items. Another sign of how people are dealing with the high cost of living. I do think one of the big takeaways here, though, is that people are still spending. We know there's a lot of recession fears out there right now, but Walmart's numbers, along with other big box retailers, they show that consumers are still spending right now, and that is very good news. All right, Matt Egan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next on The Lead, placing blame one year after that chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. Why Republican lawmakers say the Biden administration is hamstrung in its ability to help that country as it struggles with poverty, starvation, oppression, and much more. Stay with us.
And our world lead Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois is criticizing his colleagues today and calling out their near-universal bashing of President Biden on the one-year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Earlier, Kinzinger tweeted, quote, Do not let my colleagues pretend today that President Trump and former Secretary of State Pompeo didn't set in motion the Afghanistan withdrawal. They did. Trump, Pompeo, and Biden all to blame, he partially wrote. As CNN's Alex Marquardt reports, the indelible, I'm sorry, the indelible images from the withdrawal and the plight of the Afghan people left behind make this a debate with no end in sight. One year ago, this was the deadly and chaotic culmination of efforts by the past two U.S. presidents to withdraw from Afghanistan. The Taliban had overrun the country. The Afghan military and government had collapsed, sapped of American support. The biggest U.S. base in Afghanistan, Bagram, abandoned by U.S. forces virtually overnight. The Trump administration had struck a deal with the Taliban to have U.S. troops leave in mid-2021, an agreement President Joe Biden argued forced his timing. So we're left with a simple decision. Either follow through on the commitment made by the last administration and leave Afghanistan, or say we weren't leaving and commit another tens of thousands more troops going back to war. Like Trump, Biden wanted out. Staying, he said, would lead to a forever war, which had already cost almost two and a half thousand American lives. And he argued ending it would also end the extraordinary cost that had risen to two trillion dollars. Republicans like Congressman Mike McCall of Texas blasted how the withdrawal was handled, calling it a stain on Biden's presidency. The evacuation was so poorly uh, handled that we just left so many behind, whether it be American citizens or Afghan partners. Thousands of those Afghans remain often hunted, McCall says, by the Taliban. More than 74,000 Afghan special immigrant visa applicants are in the pipeline. The Biden administration so far has issued over 15,000 visas. It's a broken program. It's continued to be broken. Um, the Biden administration made a recent announcement to help with that, to help speed up the process. Many are Afghan women trying to get out as their rights are torn away by the Taliban, an issue that Senator Jean Shaheen has fought for for years. We've seen the rights of women be dramatically restricted, their ability to, um, to work, to go to school. Without the American military there, Shaheen says, the U.S. is hamstrung in its ability to do more. And the agreement the U.S. struck with the Taliban to not harbor terrorists, she says, is effectively dead after the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahri, was found to be living in downtown Kabul. The U.S. drone strike that killed him, the Biden administration says, is proof that so-called over-the-horizon missions from outside Afghanistan can work. But the U.S. intelligence community is severely hampered by not having American eyes and ears on the ground, according to the CIA's top former analyst on Afghanistan, Beth Sanner. We have a growing terrorist threat in Afghanistan. I will say, I think we need to keep this in perspective. It's nothing like what it was before 2001. Al-Qaeda is still a shadow of itself. We still have that ability to take them out. A threat that raises concerns of an attack in the United States, the head of the FBI, Chris Wray, said earlier this month. Today, Afghanistan is spiraling, facing medical, humanitarian and economic crises that only further fuel the fierce debate over the Afghanistan war and its calamitous ending, a debate that will continue long past this first anniversary.
While the people of Afghanistan are in such dire need, the Biden administration said this week it will not be releasing the $7 billion of Afghan assets that have been frozen by the U.S. Half of that, so about $3.5 billion, has been designated for helping the Afghan people. But the State Department says it's still trying to figure out how to do that without it ending up in the hands of terrorist groups. Jake? All right, Alex Marquardt, thank you. Joining us now to discuss Republican Congressman Mike McCall of Texas. He is the ranking member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, I want to start by asking you about your Republican colleague Adam Kinzinger's tweet today, where he said, quote, do not let my colleagues pretend today that Trump and Trump's then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo didn't set in motion the Afghanistan withdrawal. They did. Trump, Pompeo and Biden are all to blame. He's suggesting Republicans aren't being honest that this is blame that should belong to not just Biden. He's not laying Biden off the hook. Uh, but Trump and Pompeo as well. What's your reaction? Oh, look, we've had 20 years of failures under both presidents of both parties. And I think uh, what happened uh, in this case was the evacuation itself. Whether you agree to pull out or not, it's the way it was done. And that, that's my biggest you know, complaint. I think the Doha agreement, I didn't agree with it. I didn't think we should be sitting down with the Taliban trying to negotiate with terrorists. Uh, they, they did try to do that. The fact is, the Doha agreement was not being complied with. The Taliban was still harboring, you know, al-Qaeda. And, and so the, uh, at the end of the day, I, the president was quoted in an interview with George Stepanopoulos where he said, irrespective of Doha, I was going to get out of Afghanistan. So Doha almost in a way is irrelevant here. We have a president of the United States that's hell-bent on getting out of Afghanistan as fast as possible without the considerations of what's happening on the ground. So um, this is obviously a report from the Republicans on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, not the Democrats, yesterday. <clears throat> now, I, I've noted this yesterday, that, that uh, the chairman of the committee, Gregory Meeks, a uh, Democrat of New York, mm -hmm. you two, generally speaking, work well together and work in a very bipartisan way. Mm -hmm. um, yesterday, you told CNN that the Democrats in the committee were initially interested in participating, but were told to stand down by the Biden administration. Meeks said the issue was he didn't think it should be about uh, the withdrawal, it should be about the entire 20 years. And here's how he responded to that specific allegation. Well, the White House never asked me not to do it. Bad story. That never occurred. Absolutely not. You know, just as we see, you know, we and the legislative branch make our own decisions of what we do. Uh, the White House uh, does not interfere and tell us what to do on this committee. So he says that's not true. Well, look, uh, Greg and I get along very well as chairman. I'm ranking member. However, uh, Look, we've only had one hearing oversight on Afghanistan uh, after this debacle. Uh, after that time, it shut down. I don't know why. Uh, my uh, speculation was that this is embarrassing for the Biden administration, what happened. You know, no one left behind. We left 100,000 Afghan, you know, personnel who supported the United States of America behind enemy lines who are now being tortured, beaten and executed. Uh, we have a, a thousand American citizens still left behind. They don't want to be talking about this. And I don't know. Uh, I, I wouldn't say I had an email saying stand down, but politically, certainly not something they want to be talking about. You think there's a lot of uh, appetite among House Republicans for Afghans to come into the United States? Because the language I've seen from your colleagues, uh, Republican members of the House and Senate, mm -hmm. seems to suggest that they don't want Afghans coming to the United States. I'm not talking about you, and obviously there are exceptions, but generally speaking. You know, the SIV program was broken. The state only had 36 
consular officers for 100,000, hundreds of thousands of people trying to get out of HKIA. Uh, I do think the Afghan partners who worked with us, with our military, the interpreters, you and I have talked to these groups, deserve uh, what we promised them, and that is we're not going to leave you behind. We're going to protect you. We owe this to them. So I personally feel a personal responsibility and duty and obligation, as do the veterans of Afghanistan, that they were our brothers in arms as well and should be protected. Uh, some people got on the planes, Jake, that should not have, and yeah. they didn't pass the vetting process and the clearance. But let's bring the good ones out of there and give them shelter, put them in a place where they're safe. Well, when you become chairman, if the Republicans take the House, uh, let me know how I can help in any way to, to save those that. young, those, those brave people who helped us. Uh, lastly, you know the dilemma that the Biden administration is in about the $7 billion. You, you know, you don't want to give, the, the Biden administration doesn't want to give this money to the Taliban uh, for fear of what they'll do with it. But you see the starvation, uh, the, the people who are suffering in Afghanistan. How does the Biden administration, how does the United States help these people without arming or whatever the Taliban? It's, it's very, I'm talking to Samantha Powers right after this. She's a USAID, you know, director about how can we get this assistance that Congress appropriated in a way that's not going to go to Al Qaeda or ISIS or, you know, help the Taliban, you know, in their effort. It's a very, it's a very dicey, tricky issue, but, but, but the poverty is real. Uh, the women left behind and the girls is the saddest story of this entire evacuation. I got four busloads of them out personally, but only 25% got out. And they refer to Schindler's List. Like, if you're on the list, you get out. If you're not on the list, you're probably going to die. Um, I think as just a, a humanitarian standpoint, we got to find a way to do it. But the Taliban's not helping themselves when they har- harbor a man like Zawahiri. You know, who harbored the top al-Qaeda leader? Mr. Haqqani, the Haqqani Network, one of the most famous terrorists who, who the network took Pakistani extremists, brought them into Afghanistan to kill Americans. Now he's a minister of interior, right. which means minister of security in Afghanistan. And like Reagan said, trust by, but verify, really hard to do with the Taliban. All right. Congressman Mike McCall, uh, Republican of Texas, always good to see you. Thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. We'll, we'll tweet out a copy of the report so people can see it and, and read it for themselves. Obviously, the Biden administration takes issues. Takes issue with well, you know, as my dad said, if you're not taking flack, if you're taking flack, you're over the target. You're over the target, He's exactly. He's a B-17 at No, I know. I'm well aware. Congressman, <laughs> good to see you. Thanks so much. Thank Coming you. up next, a Maryland couple in court charged in an espionage plot. How prosecutors say they tried to hide their U.S. secrets in a peanut butter sandwich, as well as a pack of chewing gum. Stay with us. In the world lead, the Russian annexed peninsula of Crimea has become a hot spot. Today, Ukraine did not immediately take responsibility for a massive explosion at a Kremlin-owned ammunition depot there. According to adding to the murkiness, Russia called the explosion, quote, sabotage. A couple hundred miles north in Zaporizhia, more shelling outside Europe's biggest nuclear power plant in Ukraine. CNN's David McKenzie reports that has escalated fears of a disaster. Explosions peppering the horizon in Russian-occupied Crimea. Just a few miles away, commuters reacting in shock, filming the blasts with their mobile phones. Even the bus is moving, they say. Six kilometers away, the bus is shaking. 
the blast at an ammunition depot in northern Crimea, causing damage to power lines, a power plant, railway tracks and residential buildings, branded sabotage by Russia's military. Kyiv has not claimed responsibility for the incident, but a Ukrainian presidential advisor called it demilitarization in action. It's the second major security incident in Crimea in just one week. Last Tuesday, massive explosions at a Russian airbase on Crimea's west coast, close to beach-going tourists. A major psychological blow. The Russian Defense Ministry blaming it on accidental detonation of ammunition. On the southern battlefield, inspectors from the Atomic Energy Agency still unable to get into the massive Zaporizhia power plant to ensure its safety. Russian officials blaming the UN for the delay. The UN denies that, saying it's ready to provide security and logistics. Russia and Ukraine blame each other for dangerous strikes near the plant which has continued to operate. President Vladimir Zelensky Monday calling on the world to introduce tough sanctions as a response to Russia's, quote, nuclear blackmail. The provocative shelling of the territory of the plant continues. Under cover of the plant, the invaders are shelling nearby towns and communities. The Russian military hides munitions and equipment at the facilities of the plant. Now, Ukrainian leadership is still not coming directly on those explosions in Crimea, Jake. But uh, just a short time ago, President Zelensky kind of hinted on it. He said that uh, the Ukrainians living in Crimea should stay away from military assets of the Russians to stay safe. Jake? Mm. David McKenzie in Ukraine, thank you so much. Turning to a sticky situation in our national lead, a federal judge has rejected plea deals for a Maryland couple accused of passing nuclear secrets using a peanut butter sandwich, among other methods. The former U.S. Navy nuclear engineer Jonathan Toby and his wife Diana were originally charged with three federal felonies. Let's bring in CNN's Oren Lieberman now. Oren, remind us how investigators unpacked this widespread plot. Jake, much of this investigation played out over last year when prosecutors say the Toby couple, Jonathan Toby, a Navy nuclear engineer, and his wife, reached out to a foreign embassy, a foreign country, to try to sell nuclear secrets. The agreement they were looking for was that they would steal nuclear secrets, according to prosecutors, and exchange them for tens of thousands of dollars of cryptocurrency. Well, that country quickly reached out to the United States, which turned this investigation over to the FBI. And it was over the course of several months, undercover FBI agents got the Toby couple, according to investigators and prosecutors, to carry out a number of dead drops, going to great lengths to try to conceal the stolen information that they were trying to pass on, including as you pointed out, hiding ScanDisk memory cards within a peanut butter sandwich and a pack of gum. That's, of course, where this gets interesting here. But the judge today, as we listen to this play out in federal court, took this very seriously. Both Jonathan Toby and his wife, Diana Toby, had pleaded guilty to these crimes and agreed to a sentence. Jonathan Toby was supposed to get between 12 and 18 years, his wife, three years. But the judge rejected the plea agreement, saying it was far too lenient and saying that it was a grave threat to national security and posed a threat to the United States. Because of that, she rejected the plea agreement. She gave the defense attorneys and the defendants here a few minutes to think over what they would do, and they withdrew their plea agreements. So, Jake, it looks like as of right now, this is headed to trial. There is, of course, time to come to another plea agreement, but that's where this is indicating that it's headed right now. So, plea agreement rejected by a federal judge, and it looks like this case is headed for trial. Hmm. Warren Lieberman of the Pentagon for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, a brand new study out today from the CDC. 
What does it reveal about that alarming case of polio identified in New York? Stay with us. In our Health Lead, a new CDC study shows the polio case identified in an unvaccinated young adult in Rockland County, New York, likely resulted from community spread. This is only the second case of this type in the United States since 1979. The study also showed just 37 percent of children under two years old in Rockland County are vaccinated against polio, which can cause permanent arm and leg paralysis. The possible reemergence of polio thought to have been eradicated has led to urgent vaccination efforts across New York City, where the virus was also detected in wastewater. Let's bring in CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, tell us more about what's in this latest CDC study. Well, well, the headline is that we, we now know polio is out there. It seems likely to be spreading in the community. Uh, most people are going to be pretty well protected, but it's the unvaccinated most at risk. This is going to sound familiar, uh, Jake. We got some more details about this individual you were just describing. So this was an unvaccinated young adult. Um, we know that the symptoms a person had, low-grade fever, neck stiffness, abdominal pain, which can happen more often with polio, but then it was that leg weakness, that sort of paralysis that we talk about. It's, it's rare, less than 1% of the time, but it happened in this individual. And the CDC, as you pointed out, Jake, concluded that this resulted from community spread. Why? Because they had already detected this polio virus in wastewater 25 days before the onset of symptoms. So it's it's out there. Again, people who have been vaccinated should take great comfort in that because it's a very effective vaccine. But the problem is if you look at vaccination rates, for example, in Rockland County, where this particular person was diagnosed that I just mentioned, vaccination rates are around 60%. Uh, just next door, uh, Orange County, 58%. Um, nationally, 92.6%. Many countries around the world, developed countries around the world, Jake, have their vaccination rates in the close to 100% range. So this is the concern. Uh, counties around the country where they have low vaccination rates uh, have to take particular sort of screening and, and care to see if this, this virus is circulating in those communities. Yeah, Jenna Salk is in heaven looking down at us saying, what are you doing? Um, turning now, uh, to, I handed this one to you. Yeah, exactly. I cured it. Uh, turning now to, to monkeypox, another disease circulating in the United States. Uh, now there's debate about whether or not to label it specifically a sexually transmitted disease with most, most cases linked to sexual activity. Um, what, what's the dispute here? Would calling it a sexually transmitted disease be, be misleading? I, I think part of this is, is just, just the language around this. I mean, I think what is clear is that people can contract this without sexual activity. Uh, the, the, it could even live on bed sheets and things like that and potentially be spread that way. I, I think this is, a, this is a language thing predominantly. Um, we know how monkeypox is spread. I mean, that's not in dispute. And it is close skin-to-skin contact. It is people who, who uh, um, have prolonged face-to-face contact. If it can be transmitted during sex, presumably because there's a lot of skin-to-skin contact during sex, but is it transmitted because of as a sexually transmitted disease does not appear to be, at least not only that way, Jake. Right, and we should underline, as always, the most at-risk group right now is men who have sex with multiple partners of other, of other men. Right. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thanks so much. Always good to see you. Coming up, combating the man-made climate crisis, the drastic action announced today aiming to save the water supply of a major U.S. river. Stay with us.
Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney's political future will be determined by Republican voters tonight. Why the vice chair of the January 6th committee is pinning hopes on folks who have not always been her fans. Plus, new and drastic water cuts ordered by the federal government for several states in the Southwest. This comes as the climate crisis has caused a key water source to drop to unprecedented low levels. And leading this hour, Donald Trump's former White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and his deputy, Patrick Philbin, were interviewed by the FBI about those classified documents taken to Mar-a-Lago when Trump left office. The New York Times first broke the story, reporting that several advisors claimed Trump said about the documents, quote, it's not theirs, it's mine, unquote. CNN's Evan Perez joins me now. Evan, what do we know about the FBI interviewing these top former Trump White House lawyers? Well, Jake, we know that uh, earlier this year, as this investigation was getting underway, the FBI interviewed uh, Pat Cipollone, who was the White House counsel, uh, and Patrick Philbin, who was his deputy. Now, again, there was a, a group of former White House aides who came in and talked to the FBI uh, as the FBI was trying to get it, uh, get its head around, gets their hand, hands around what exactly happened with these boxes of federal records that made their way from the White House uh, to the former president's uh, home in Palm Beach. Uh, the question, obviously, uh, for all of these aides is exactly what happened, how did these documents end up in, in Mar-a-Lago? Obviously, we know that in the intervening several months, the, 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 the former president's legal team has been talking to the FBI, to the Justice Department uh, trying to figure out, again, these people trying to get back these documents. And clearly, something went wrong in the intervening period, which led to the, uh, to the, to the, to the, to the search that happened at the former president's uh, home in, in Palm Beach last week. And Evan, big picture this for us. Why are these interviews with Trump's former top two lawyers at the White House. Why are they significant? Well, first of all, these were two uh, of several representatives of the former president named as people to be in touch with the National Archives should anything like this happen. So they would be in the position to be the first to, to, to get contacted. The other part of this, uh, Jake, that I think is important for people to know is, you know, these two men would know uh, the answer to the big question that I think a lot of us are asking, which is, uh, is, is it true that the former president had some kind of standing order to, to declassify documents. Was it true that, you know, by, by simply sending documents from the West Wing to the, uh, to the residents, did that deem them declassified? Those are questions that these two men, as, as, as top counsels to the former president, would have answers to. So uh, again, but th these, these men are very key to knowing exactly the, the, the sequence of events of how these records were being handled inside the White House. And as a reminder, of course, lying to the media, lying to the American people, not a crime. Lying to the FBI, that's a crime. Evan Perez, difference. thanks so much. Appreciate it. Turning to our money lead now, President Biden signed a sweeping $750 billion health care, tax and climate bill into law this afternoon. The bill will give billions of dollars to fight climate change. It makes major changes to Medicare as well by giving the Medicare agency the power to negotiate some drug prices for the first time. As CNN's MJ Lee reports for us now, this is a major victory for Democrats ahead of November's midterm elections. To soul America is vibrant, the future of America is bright, and the promise of America is real and just beginning. A major moment for the Joe Biden presidency. The bill I'm about to sign is not just about today. 
It's about tomorrow. It's about delivering progress and prosperity to American families. Capping a productive year of legislating on Capitol Hill, President Biden signing into law today a sweeping $750 billion climate, health care and tax bill. Democrats have billed the package the Inflation Reduction Act, despite experts concluding there would likely be little to no immediate impact on lowering prices. The Inflation Reduction Act invests three hundred and sixty nine billion dollars to take the most aggressive action ever, 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 ever in confronting the climate crisis and strengthening our, our economic, our energy security. It does, however, mark the U.S.'s most significant investment ever to fight climate change. The law would also reduce prescription drug prices by allowing Medicare to negotiate directly with drug makers, extend Affordable Care Act health care subsidies, and tax large corporations to reduce the deficit. Every single Republican in the Congress sided with the special interest in this vote. Every single one. And while this package arrived on the president's desk after getting zero Republican votes, Biden has also been growing a list of bipartisan legislative accomplishments. That had been a signature promise from presidential candidate Joe Biden. I'm running as a proud Democrat, but I will govern as an American president. I'll work with Democrats and Republicans. A year and a half into his first term, Biden has signed into law a gun safety bill. Lives will be saved. Legislation to help veterans exposed this to burn law, pits. This law is long overdue. A semiconductor bill aimed at making the U.S. more competitive against China. Those tiny computer chips, smaller than a fingertip. And a major infrastructure investment package. All bills that garnered some support from across the political aisle. Red states, blue states, y'all contacted me. Y'all said you were for this. Now, after President Biden signed this bill into law today, we saw him turn and hand that hand that pen uh, deliberately to Senator Joe Manchin. It is, of course, because of Senator Manchin and Senator Chuck Schumer uh, coming together in recent uh, weeks with this surprise deal that this legislation ultimately ended up coming together. And Jake, that rhetoric that we saw from the president today, uh, expect to hear so much more of that. That message being that the Democratic Party is working to deliver results for the American people, uh, we are told that White House officials and the president himself, they are really going to be hitting the road and really touting the legislative accomplishments from the president's first few years in office. All right, MJ Lee at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Uh, let's bring in Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State. Congresswoman, this law is going to accomplish a lot, uh, among other items, billions of dollars to combat climate change, the power for the Medicare agency to negotiate some drug prices, caps for Medicare out-of-pocket drug costs for seniors. Uh, it extends Affordable Care Act subsidies and imposes a 15% minimum tax for large corporations. Um, I, I, first of all, congratulations. But, but I, I'm confused about something. Democrats keep calling this the Inflation Reduction Act. Plenty of experts say it's not going to reduce inflation. Um, why is it being called that? Well, Jake, first of all, this is a huge accomplishment. And all of the things that you mentioned in and of themselves, each one is a massive transformation, right? We've never taken on climate change at this scale, at this level, bringing down carbon emissions by 40% by the year 2030 and investing $60 billion into environmental justice as we do that. We've never had Medicare negotiating drug prices despite decades of actually trying to fight for that. 
And, you know, for the, for the first time in a long time, these big corporations are wealthiest corporations, billionaire corporations are going to have to pay a minimum tax. So each one, massive accomplishment. Um, I wasn't part of the naming, uh, naming squad, if you will, but I will say that the bill is going to reduce costs for American consumers. And I think that is an important idea that we are going to save the average American family a thousand bucks in energy cost reductions. And of course, with the continuation of the Affordable Care Act subsidies and the negotiation of prescription drug prices, bringing the cost of insulin down, among other things, capping yeah. that at 35 bucks, um, all of those things are going to reduce costs for the American family. And I think that's really the idea behind it. Yeah, that's not what inflation is necessarily, but I, I take your point. Uh, m- many of the provisions in this law, we should note, are not going to go into effect until the year 2023, uh, including the drug rebates, a cap on Medicare drug costs, and the insulin copays you were just referring to, the clean energy credits for manufacturing, uh, then the new tax, the minimum tax for large companies, 15%. Um, and yet one of the biggest parts of the bill that allows Medicare to negotiate the price for some drugs, that won't even begin until 2026. Uh, so in a lot of ways, voters are not going to feel the benefits of this bill uh, until after the midterms, if not in the cases of the, of the latter issue I just brought up, after the next presidential election. Does that concern you at all? Well, of course, I would have liked to see some of those things being addressed more quickly, but I don't think it takes away from the enormity of what we're doing. And we will be able to convey that to voters. I do think voters are looking at what we're doing on climate change, and they're not expecting to turn this around by tomorrow. They are expecting the United States to take leadership on taking on climate change, fighting for climate justice, and this bill is going to get that done. That's going to energize you know, millions of young voters in particular, but a lot of voters across the country who feel like this is an issue that has been evaded and um, you know, really obscured predominantly by Republicans who refuse to believe that it's even real. So I think that while I understand we're not going to get everything right away, people aren't going to see that, they are going to see that we can get things done. And between this bill and the American Rescue Plan, in my mind, those are the two most significant pieces of legislation that I have had the opportunity to work on, that we have had the opportunity to vote on for some time, both of which were done with only Democratic votes. And of course, then we have all the other bipartisan bills as well that are big accomplishments. Listen to what Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, said about working with President Biden throughout this process. When it fell apart, we we stayed silent for quite a while. And then at the proper time, are you getting what you need? Are we giving you, you know, just enough. And he, he knew enough being a former senator, sometimes you just got to let us do what we got to do. And uh, I, I give him all the credit for that. So that's how it worked. I know a lot of progressives were very, very frustrated with Senator Manchin uh, throughout this process. Many had quite harsh things to say. At the end of the day, do you give Senator Manchin uh, and President Biden credit, uh, as well as uh, Majority Leader Schumer, for, for getting this done? Absolutely. I've always given the president credit for coming in with a vision that was big, bold, populist and being willing to fight for it. And I would argue that the Progressive Caucus was probably his best friend on Capitol Hill in terms of selling this to the country, pushing for it, making sure we got legislation drafted and passed in the House. Many of those pieces that are in the Inflation Reduction Act came directly from the piece of legislation we drafted in the House. And as for Senator Manchin, I think it's a great thing that he was able to get to a place 
where he could be comfortable with moving some of these critical issues along and that he didn't give up. I give him a lot of credit for that. And uh, I'm happy to have him in, in the Democratic family. I'm happy we got this done. I would love to have a couple more Democrats in the Senate so that we can pass the rest of President Biden's economic agenda, which 99% of Democrats are on board with and a lot of the population, Democrats, independents, and Republicans want universal childcare, universal pre-K, investments in housing, all of that stuff, Jake, still to be done. Um, but we're very close and I feel great about it. Congresswoman Jayapal of Washington State, good to see you. Thanks so much. Thank you. Unprecedented water restrictions are about to go into place across the Southwest as a key water source drops to dangerous new lows. Then, former Alaska governor and vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin may be returning to elected office. That's ahead. In our Earth Matters series, mandatory steep water cuts are coming for the Southwest. For the first time starting next year, the Colorado River will operate in a two-tier shortage condition. That means places that rely upon the Colorado River will need to significantly cut back on their water consumption, with Nevada, Arizona, and even the country of Mexico needing to cut back the most. But experts say this, even though drastic, will not be enough to tackle the ongoing mega drought, which is, of course, made worse by the climate crisis. CNN's Bill Weir reports now from Lake Mead. Whiskey is for drinking. Water is for fighting. That supposed Mark Twain quote has been a Western slogan since the first settlers. But now the worst drought in 1,200 years has water managers in seven states, 30 tribal nations, and Mexico fighting over every precious drop. But to date, the states collectively have not identified and adopted specific actions of sufficient magnitude that would stabilize the system. That was the commissioner in charge of dams and reservoirs, admitting that upper and lower basin states have failed to agree on ways to cut their water use by up to 25%. I think ultimately the states are going to realize they're playing Russian roulette and they're gonna to have to come to their senses. For almost 30 years, Pat Mulroy was in charge of Southern Nevada's water and led an aggressive conservation campaign to tear up lawns, reuse wastewater, and scold water wasters. Can't water in the middle of the day, ma'am. You'll be fine if you don't change your watering clock. All measures she'd like to see happen downstream. I think they're kind of kicking the can down the road past the election, if you want, to, want me to be very frank about it. Um, I don't think anybody wants to make great public announcements about measures they may have to take right. prior to the election. Rather than the force new action, the feds will let the states keep talking, while the next round of automatic cuts will lower water delivery by 7% to Mexico, 8% to Nevada, and 21% to Arizona. You can hear this crunching. It's just starting to dry up. Here, alfalfa farmers are already being paid to let their fields go fallow while some are switching to crops like Waiuli, a rubber plant that grows in the desert. Crop switching, looking at lower water use crops like Waiuli, is one of the solutions we need to be looking at in a drier future to allow communities to sustain themselves. Thanks to some creative water accounting, California will not face mandatory cuts next year, but their governor is already warming of a future with a lot more people and a lot less water. The science and the data leads us to now understand that we will lose 10% of our water supply by 2040. If all things are equal, we will lose an additional 10% of our supply by 2040. 
have the very real possibility this coming year, if we have another lousy winter, all things being equal, that we will drive this lake down to elevation 1,000. That is 100 feet above Deadpool, and you're at the bottom of the martini glass. So it doesn't take much to tip that over and get to the point where nothing can go downstream. And if you don't take it seriously now, if you think that you're going to avoid this, do a rain dance, go pray, do whatever, that we have a great winter, you're insane. And we haven't even talked about the loss of hydropower from Hoover Dam, from Glen Canyon Dam that supplies millions of people across the West, Jake. Among the big ideas, a lot more desalination plants, maybe bringing seawater into the Salton Sea. Uh, there are old ideas people have been talking about for half a century about piping water from the Mississippi or harvesting glaciers from Alaska. All of these things are moonshot ideas that would take billions of dollars and many, many years. In the meantime, conservation is the new watchword if you want to live in the American West. Another important report from Bill Weir on the climate beat. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, it's Election Day in Wyoming, and Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney is hoping that some former Democratic voters might help her keep her seat in Congress. Stay with us. And we're back in our politics lead, a major primary day for two high-profile Republican critics of former President Donald Trump right now. Wyoming voters are deciding if January 6th Committee Vice Chair Liz Cheney will keep her seat in Congress. She's facing Trump-backed attorney Harriet Hageman for the state's single congressional seat. In Alaska, Senator Lisa Murkowski, who voted to convict the former president in his second impeachment trial, is up against a Trump-endorsed challenger in one of the most highly anticipated contests of this year's Senate midterms. Also on the ballot, former governor and Republican vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin who's seeking that state's one-house seat. CNN's Jeff Zeleny joins us now live from Jackson, Wyoming. Jeff, you're, you're learning new details about Cheney's speech this evening. Jake, we are. We're learning that Congresswoman Liz Cheney, win or lose, is going to frame this as the beginning of the next battle. Of course, the battle that she speaks of is uh, her long-running feud with former President Donald Trump, her fight for democracy, for the rule of law. So I am told, again, regardless of the outcome, which gives you a sense that they're certainly not expecting a victory tonight, that she is going to try and turn the page to the next chapter. I'm told she's going to stop well short of announcing any of her own uh, personal uh, plans or ambitions, but she is going to begin forming some type of a think tank, perhaps a super PAC, to help other Republican candidates who are like-minded. She also is going to just uh, basically amplify some of the themes she's been talking about throughout the January uh, 6th the commission. But before all that, the voting is still going on here in Wyoming. We spent the day talking to voters on both sides, and it is Democrats and independents who could offer her a lifeline if that's possible. Take a listen to this voter we talked to earlier today. I've been a Democrat almost all my life, and with Liz Cheney, I decided we're going to get a Republican in Wyoming. I'd rather have her than Hageman. I don't agree with any of her politics, none. But what I've seen her do on the committee, I think, is very rewarding. I think she's done a hell of a good job. Of course, that view is not echoed by many Republicans across the state that we've been talking to here for the last week or so. There is deep disappointment in what Congresswoman Cheney has done in terms of the January 6th the commission. 
Of course, Donald Trump carried this state by a wider margin than any in the country back in 2020. So that gives you the sense of the uphill uh, battle that she's facing, Jake. And Jeff, Alaska is using a top four primary this year for the first time. Is that likely to help or hurt Senator Lisa Murkowski? It's definitely likely to help her, at least today. She's running against some 18 opponents on the ballot. And since there is a ranked choice voting for the first time in Alaska, the top four candidates go on to the general election in November. So uh, she certainly will be among them. Her leading opponent, who's endorsed by the former President Donald Trump, she will likely be as well. But having this... uh, Um, Her support split among so many people certainly helps her in the short run. There are a lot of candidates across the country who wish they had ranked choice voting top two, top four. So certainly Senator Murkowski uh, is going to feel that. So she still feels pretty good about her election come November. But the the real race will start tomorrow and that against her likely and three other candidates. All right, Jeff Zeleny in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming. Thanks so much. Let's discuss uh, uh, Kristen Soltys-Anderson. Let me start with you because you conducted a focus group of 13 people who plan to vote in today's primary Uh, Republican primary in Wyoming. When you ask the panel how many of them plan to vote for Liz Cheney, of 13, two Republicans raised their hands, uh, eight others indicating they will not vote for her. What were some of the reasons that they gave you for not supporting Liz Cheney? So what's fascinating is that so much of the conversation about this race is about Donald Trump. And frankly, when people talk about what do Republican voters care about, when we have conversations around tables like this, it often comes back to Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. And yet for these voters, their biggest criticism of Liz Cheney is that they feel the last two years of her political career have been too much about Donald Trump. The word vendetta got used in the focus group that a lot of these voters said, look, I voted for her in the past, but I feel like her focus has shifted from what's best for Wyoming to be more about impeachment, January 6th, et cetera. And for them, they thought that was too off mission. And that's why they said in this focus group that they intended to vote for Harriet Hageman. So Naveen, uh, Cheney had hoped to convince many Democrats and independents in the state to change their party registration to support her. They could vote for her in the Republican uh, primary. This is a state we should point out. Republicans make up three quarters of the electorate as of today. The total number of registered Republicans in the state is only up about 6,000 from January 1st of last year. Uh, In Christian's focus group, the Democrats and independents said they'd vote for Cheney. But are there enough Democrats and independents to to help? It's really hard to imagine that. I mean, this is a state Joe Biden got 26 percent in. He did better in West Virginia than he did in Wyoming. So I think that's a real hard thing to imagine. And the other thing that's worth remembering is that this is, you know, people have focused on the last two years and the committee's work and her, her, her voice in that effort. But when she ran in the primary, in the Republican primary in 2016, she only got, she barely got 40 percent. She was not, you know, there was a change happening in the Republican Party already at that point. Hmm. And it really has been this transition. You know, uh, the President Biden is fond of saying this is not your father's Republican Party. I think uh, she would also say this is not my father's Republican Party. And it's been going on for a while. But, Margaret, uh, even in uh, Kristen's um, focus group, uh, Republicans talking about Donald Trump didn't universally, even if they supported him, uh, love him. Some of the terms they used to describe him in her focus group, brash, out for himself, controversial but effective, unpresidential, bold and unapologetic. These are comments from Republicans who are not planning to vote for Cheney. What do you make of that? I think we have been talking about Trump's successes and his his power in in contests so far in the context of the primary election, because that's the season we're in. But things are about to turn, and they are turning state by state, to the general election. And what it tells me is that there could be some softness among Republican voters, and that could impact turnout. Like, we can analyze the past six months 
um, and say, wow, it's undeniably been very successful for Trump. Look at the number of nominees who are, are still talking about challenging the 2020 results or denying you know, uh, the election or who are rallying around the defund the FBI calls. But when you move those, that equation into a general election race, it's significantly different. And then you have the Alaska race. Uh, let's talk about Sarah Palin for a second, because I think people are kind of, there's so much going on with Liz Cheney and then Lisa Murkowski. People are kind of not paying enough attention. She's about to become a member of Congress in all likelihood. There was a fundraiser, uh, uh, however, um, that were, was run by the parents of Sarah Palin's ex-husband, Todd, uh, for her Republican opponent, uh, Nick Begich, I think is his name, uh, when asked why... They were not supporting Sarah Palin. The father-in-law, former father-in-law, seemed to suggest uh, that because Governor Palin uh, didn't finish her term, that was, that was uh, one of the reasons. But it's hard to think that was the only reason. What do you make of it? <laughs> well, I'm not going to get into the family dynamics there. Please don't. Please don't. Yeah. <laughs> but I will say this is the first time that this seat is going to be open in 49 years, so it makes sense that there's a lot of interest. It makes sense for her, who sort of left the governorship in disgrace. She resigned amid scandal to essentially shoot her shot again. And also, Sarah Palin would fit in really well with this House Republican conference. These are her people, essentially. I would say, though, that she has a tall order ahead of her in terms of convincing Alaskans that she's truly in it for them and not just trying to advance her own celebrity or revive her political career. I think it's an interesting sort of uh, other side of the coin of this sort of coda, the real end of the Bush era with Liz Cheney likely losing today. You had George P. Bush unsuccessful in his primary in Texas earlier this year, despite trying to get Trump's endorsement. And I actually think you can look at the Republican Party, go all the way back to that moment. Sarah Palin stands on that stage in Minneapolis in 2008 and fires up that crowd as John McCain's newly announced running mate. As the moment that what we see now with Donald Trump and what we see in the Republican base as the, the sort of first hints of that beginning to overtake that Bush-era Republican Party. Yeah, the, uh, for want of a better term, you could call it a populism uh, of some sort. Um, something else interesting happening, speaking of family uh, fights, uh, former Trump White House advisor Peter Navarro uh, is going after one of his former West Wing colleagues, Trump's son-in-law Jared Kushner. And Navarro is calling Kushner, quote, the clown prince of Pennsylvania Avenue in a new article for the pro-Trump magazine or website, American Greatness. This really speaks to uh, some other fights that we anticipate seeing uh, as, as Trump, as we anticipate he, he runs for president again. Yeah, I think there's no question that, I actually think the debate is now over, and maybe Liz Cheney is the coda on, on this transition, and Sarah Palin ascending to a, a congressional seat. But everyone has sort of aligned this. You know, there's great reporting even in, uh, on CNN this week about how governors who are going to be running these races, you know, winning uh, nominations across the country, have aligned with overturning elections and the need to, you know, questioning doubt about the 2020 election. And it really is who the Republican Party is. And I sometimes worry that we lose sight of the fact that Trump is clearly an instigator of it. But there's so much more for there's so many more forces around him that are actually going to take this work forward if he's on the ballot or if he's not. Yeah. I mean, Governor Ron DeSantis, who I think a lot of Republicans uh, have told me they were hoping uh, would be ascendant and to end the Trump era because he was kind of the Trump policies and some of the Trump vibe, you know, like anti-news media, et cetera, without some of Trump's more undisciplined moments. Uh, he's out there supporting uh, election deniers, uh, Carrie Lake in Arizona, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania and others. And they're raising questions about the FBI and the um, Schedule F is the official term, but the idea of toppling the civil service or blowing up American bureaucracy. These are uh, becoming 
sort of, to some extent, the new litmus test, not for Trump, well, for Trump too, but for Trump's base, that there are things that you have to say if you want to stay in the good graces of that base, or there are things that uh, these candidates or prospective candidates think that they probably have to say. And it, it, it makes it very hard to uh, break ahead of Trump because by saying it, you're elevating Trump. And Although, that's, go ahead. I mean, I was just gonna say, it's like it's, uh, uh, it's a catch-22 for all of these would-be 2024 hopes. And yet you know who else has co-opted Trump? Benji Sarlin had a really interesting tweet. So much of what Joe Biden has done in the last yeah. year is stuff that Trump campaigned on. Yeah. Right. I mean, infrastructure, mm-hmm. uh, being tough on China when it comes to uh, some of the I mean, it's just, it's really remarkable. But that's the policy part of it uh, that a lot of Republicans don't seem to be that all that interested in co-opting. Right. He has had some victories just in the last few weeks that Democrats will be able to run on. On Trump, though, I was out in Erie, Pennsylvania last week at the Fetterman rally speaking to voters there. And I was really surprised that so many were talking about how they were concerned about the health of our democracy. Mm. Uh, And a retired X-ray technician telling me that that was his number one issue. So I think that what's going on on the right, the left, those voters are actually paying attention and they're thinking about it more. Some more than inflation, more than reproductive rights. Some are actually really motivated by preserving our democracy and against these uh, far-right candidates. All right, one one and all, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Nazi imagery and a treason watch list featuring images of Democrats. These are just some of the posts uncovered by CNN from the Trump-backed Arizona Secretary of State candidate. Stay with us. Politics Now, new CNN reporting on Mark Fincham, the Trump-endorsed Republican nominee for Secretary of State in Arizona, who calls himself a member of the far-right extremist Oath Keepers group. CNN's K-File team has uncovered several disturbing social media posts from Fincham, including a so-called treason watch list that he created featuring several high-profile Democrats and photographs of Barack Obama alongside imagery of a man clad in Nazi attire. CNN K-File senior editor Andrew Kaczynski broke the story for us. Andrew, take us through what you found. Yeah, so we combed through uh, Fincham's old social media accounts, um, which led us to this Pinterest uh, account where he posted a lot of this content. Now, Pinterest is usually for sharing uh, photos of dogs, uh, like fashion, um, food maybe. Uh, he used it to post um, post about stockpiling ammunition. Uh, he had these posts where he compared Obama to uh, to Nazi Germany, showing, as you can see, somebody giving a Nazi salute. Um, really, really sort of nutty, outlandish claims, like uh, that the Mexican army was going to be invading or was invading uh, the United States. Uh, and that one he actually posted and commented on himself. He didn't just take that from uh, someone else and put it on his board. Now, uh, he also had this treason watch list where he showed photos of both uh, Democratic politicians uh, and Jesse Jackson. These are presumably people he thought were guilty of treason. Now, he's running for secretary of state in Arizona. Uh, and this race is, is very, very important. Uh, the Arizona Secretary of State administers the elections in the state. Uh, they certify the results. And as we saw you know, in the last election, this is going to be a super important swing state. So it's obviously important that the person um, administering 
the election um, is kind of on the level. Andrew, the several members, leaders of the Oath Keepers, a far-right militia group, um, were indicted uh, and accused of seditious conspiracy in the January 6th uh, attack. Um, how involved is Fincham with the Oath Keepers? Yeah, so Fincham, uh, when he first ran for state office in 2014, he uh, told a local publication that he was a member of the Oath Keepers, uh, an old campaign account that he maintained that's since been deleted, uh, told, asked people to join the Oath Keepers uh, on, a, again, a since-deleted Facebook page. Uh, he posted uh, several um, you know, events for the Arizona chapter of the Oath Keepers, of, of which he was a member. Now, we asked Fincham about this content. Uh, he just sent us a message back. He called, you know, he said CNN wasn't credible. He didn't respond to any of the individual allegations. He did delete uh, one of his Pinterest boards post-publication that had some of this uh, information on there. Um, but we haven't heard him respond to any of the individual allegations in the story. All right, Andrew Kaczynski, thank you so much. Good to see you again. For the fourth time, an Oklahoma death row inmate is granted a stay of execution. Coming up next, the case that has Republicans and Democrats agreeing. Stay with us. In our national lead, the life of death row inmate Richard Glossop has been temporarily spared yet again. Oklahoma's governor approved a 60-day stay of execution today, citing the need to allow for the state's Court of Appeals to complete its review of a petition for a new hearing. This comes after a report commissioned by a bipartisan group of Oklahoma state lawmakers raising concerns of lost or destroyed evidence in Glossop's case. Glossop was convicted of murder in the death of his boss in 1997. Prosecutors say he was the mastermind behind a murder-for-hire plot, but he has maintained his innocence for more than 20 years. CNN's Bryn Gingrass is following all of this. Bryn, tell us more about the governor's move to issue this 60-day stay of execution for Glossop. Yeah, Jake, well, this was unexpected, certainly to the defense team of Richard Glossop, who was preparing for a clemency hearing scheduled for next week. And that, of course, could be just emotionally grueling, not only for Glossop, but also the victim's family, Barry Van Tree. So that's on hold right now. And as you mentioned, this comes after that independent investigation was released and 62 lawmakers, a majority of Republicans in the state there, um, asked the governor to say, hey, wait a minute, let's take a beat and take a look at all of this evidence that has been uncovered that point to Richard Glossa being innocent in this case. In fact, they've even uncovered more evidence that was released just last week. So now it's up to the Oklahoma uh, Criminal Court of Appeals to decide, are they going to take a look at this evidence? But the governor, they're definitely buying some more time for Richard Glossop. He was set to be executed on September 22nd. Now it's going to be pushed back for now until uh, December, uh, December 8th. And Bryn, what, what is the reaction of Richard Glossop to this? Yeah, I mean, you can imagine, Jake, he's ecstatic. I talked to his defense team earlier today who said they actually had a phone call with Richard behind bars, and he basically just started crying. You have to remember, this is a man, as you mentioned, who's been on death row three prior times to this. Each time he goes on death row, he has to go into different holding cells completely separate from where he is right now. It's a process where it's 24-hour surveillance. The lights are on all the time. All he has is a Bible. He gets his last meal. Now, that process was expected to start tomorrow. 
tomorrow because his death penalty execution date was set for, you know, just a couple weeks from now. Now that's not going to happen. So just the emotional sort of feeling that that doesn't have to begin for him, he's ecstatic about. Of course, now they wait to see how the Court of Appeals is going to decide on this case. All right, Bryn Gingras, thanks so much for that update. Back in our world lead, a story of heroism in the face of horror. A Brooklyn father threw himself in front of his family to shield them as a terrorist described as being a Palestinian with Israeli citizenship fired upon a bus in Jerusalem on Sunday. Shia Hirsch Glick was shot in the neck. A family friend says it's a miracle the bullet narrowly missed his artery. In total, eight people were injured in the shooting, including five Americans, two of whom are critically wounded right now. Sunan's Hadass Gold reports now for us from Jerusalem, where more victims, including a mother and her newborn, are on a tough road to recovery. Shia Hirsch Glick had come to Jerusalem from New York for a 10-day trip with his family to pray at the holy sites before his son Baruch's wedding. But their vacation turned to horror early Sunday morning in what Israeli police are describing as a terror attack. A man coming up to a bus stop just outside Jerusalem's old city walls and began shooting. This is where the attack took place at the bus stop for King David's tomb. Shia's family telling me they were actually waiting here for a taxi to take them to their hotel when the attack began. And although Shia was struck in both the face and the neck and he fell down, he got back up despite being wounded to pull his son Baruch away. Shia's wife and daughter miraculously were unhurt. Back in New York, family friends like Rabbi David Niederman say they're not surprised by Shia's act. He shielded the most important to him, which is his wife and children and sacrificed himself. So it is beyond explanation. The father gave away as a father gives away everything to his children. Another family friend, Rabbi Moshe Indig, says Shia had already been granted one miracle by surviving cancer years before. Now he has another. Doctors couldn't believe it. He just missed his main artery with just the thickness of a hairline. Eight people in total were injured, including a pregnant woman who had to undergo an emergency C-section, as well as 22-year-old New Yorker Menachem Palas. Bullets. Pop, pop. The Glick family's community back in New York are now praying for the victim's recovery and peace. We pray everybody should be in peace, in harmony, and love with each other. And we pray this shouldn't happen again to anyone. And Jake, I spoke with Shia's wife, Giddy. She's been shuttling between the two hospitals where her husband is and her son, Baruch, was shot in the arm. They've been getting treatment. She said that she believes angels were watching over them that day. She couldn't believe how strong her husband was because he got up wounded. He said blood was pouring out when he pulled Baruch out of the way. But they are hopeful because they are seeing some improvements in his conditions. Now they're focused on the long road to recovery and also how to get home to their six other children. Jake. All right, Hadass Gold in Jerusalem, thank you so much for that report. Finally, from us today, a heartbreaking story. A California mother is grieving the loss of two sons in less than a year in what she called a ripple effect. Her son, Marine Corps Lance Corporal Kareem Nakui, was one of the 13 U.S. service members killed outside the Kabul airport in a terrorist attack at the end of last August. And then just last week, after struggling with his brother's death, her other son, Dakota Halverson, died by suicide. Their mother wrote on Facebook, quote, he'd sneak into the cemetery at night and sleep on Kareem's resting place. He took his life across from a permanent memorial we have here in town for his brother, Kareem. A reminder to anyone watching, if you are struggling with any 
suicidal thoughts, please, please reach out to the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by calling or texting 988-988. May Dakota's and Kareem's memories be a blessing. Our deepest condolences to the family. Thank you for watching The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up in the Situation Room, Congressman and January 6th Committee member Adam Schiff joins Wolf Blitzer. That's after a short break. We'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.